Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and the Gospel of Luke tonight. We pick things up in uh, uh, the account concerning uh, Lazarus and the rich man, which begins in uh, verse 19, and uh, it's helpful, I think, to uh, understand a little bit about the context related to this before we head into it. It really is a fabulous little section of Scripture because it gives us insight um, into uh, the realm of life after death that is uh, unique and I think really uh, very, very uh, profound. And um, it is, it is uh, possible people are certainly divided on it and nobody can be dogmatic about it. Uh, some people consider this to be a parable and uh, Jesus likening uh, something in the physical realm to a spiritual reality so that we can understand it. Uh, but there's quite a case that can be built for the fact that it isn't a parable at all, but that Jesus is actually talking about a rich man and a man by the name of Lazarus who was well known to the religious audience that he is talking to because as Jesus introduces uh, this, he does not introduce it the way he introduces a parable. It is also uh, no parable ever contains the proper name of an individual as this one does. And so it's very, very likely, I think, that the audience understood both who this rich man was and who Lazarus was and uh, that made the truth that was being imparted to them uh, even more, uh, more personal uh, for them. Now, it, it, the context of this is important as we remember Jesus was talking to His disciples as we saw last week at the beginning of the chapter and the parable of the unjust steward. And as He's talking about the, the stewardship, how to be a proper steward of money and all as a one of his disciples, he was derided, he was laughed at and mocked by uh, the Pharisees as he was teaching related to this because they were lovers of money and uh, they mocked what it is that he had to say uh, about all uh, of that. And uh, Jesus also, not only uh, then is he, as they derided him, you go from verses six, uh, um, uh, 15 all the way through verse uh, 18 and Jesus confronts them not only with the fact of their uh, covetousness, but he uh, confronted them with their unbelief concerning him uh, as uh, the Messiah in light of the Scriptures. And so, Jesus recognized they were in no condition to enter into eternity, though they felt they were uh, 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 more than ready to enter into eternity based upon one simple thing, that they were wealthy, and they viewed the promises of the Mosaic Law that if you kept the commandments of God, you would always be wealthy. And that wealth was always a picture of um, uh, the fact that God's blessing was upon your life. And so if you had a person like Lazarus who was more than poor, that that was a sign that there must be secret sin in his life. He's not right with God. He's in the judgment side of things. And so Jesus is going to, with what he speaks here, he's going to correct all of that and let them know that that can be exactly polar opposite in terms of who's spiritual, who isn't, who's ready for eternity, who isn't ready for eternity. And he's going to make very, very certain that they realize that they are not ready uh, for eternity. And so he introduces uh, this by saying there was a certain rich man, and uh, in the description that follows, he was clothed in purple, and uh, purple was, I don't even know, you don't even know how to put it into words for how valuable purple was in the ancient world. Um, to wear some, a purple cloth uh, the only source and the best source of, of purple that they would wear was a murex shell. And it was a, it was a, a shell uh, uh, from water. And uh, each one of those uh, creatures would yield but a single drop of the purple dye. So for you to wear a purple garment or even a purple accessory like a sash or something like that, 
it just spoke, uh, I don't know what the equivalent would be in our modern world, but it spoke of extreme wealth. And so he's clothed in purple. He, not, he, he, the robe that he's wearing is purple and, uh, and fine linen, speaking of, of the garments underneath his robe. And he fared sumptuously every day. And so uh, he could eat anything that he wanted. He could eat as much as he wanted. He did so every day uh, of his life. He was the prototype, the picture of the individual that the Pharisees felt are going to fill heaven itself. And someone who is, uh, is uh, already, um, uh, uh, already ready uh, for, for that heavenly scene and to be greeted into that heavenly scene uh, by God. Then in contrast, there was a certain beggar uh, by the name of Lazarus. And he's full of sores probably because of uh, the malnutrition and his ill health and all as we, as we see here. And he was laid at uh, the gate of the rich man. So he couldn't walk. He was apparently laid at a gate that was near the rich man's home. And that's where he laid to do his begging each day. And uh, the one desire that he had each day, imagine this being your daily portion, that uh, each morning you would wake up and then you would be delivered to this gate and your lone hope for that day was that something would fall from the rich man's table that you would be able to eat to sustain yourself for another day and do it all over again the next day. And Lazarus is the kind of person that the Pharisees looked at and said, that person is in trouble with God. If, if the truth were made known about them, he's on the wrong side of the covenant because you can't be on the wrong side of the Mosaic, uh, uh, right side of the Mosaic covenant and end up with a life like he was living. And so uh, he desired to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table, and moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. It's an interesting thing about dogs, they do like to lick sores. But put yourself in, in the picture of this man. The, the sole comfort, the sole uh, touch of comfort and compassion that he experienced every day was the dogs that would come and, and lick his uh, wounds for him. And so this is the portion, this is uh, the, the contrast that is laid out, and uh, they just assumed, based upon their incorrect theology, uh, that Jesus was going to continue the story, and upon death that the rich man, uh, like them, would automatically uh, go into heaven and that Lazarus would uh, go into hell. And so, but Jesus continues the account, and so it was that the beggar uh, died. And so that was his position as a beggar. And he was carried by the angels. Jesus greets us now following his death, burial, and resurrection. But here prior to that death, burial, and resurrection, carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And we'll talk about a little bit more about what that is. Carried into Abraham's arms, that kind of, uh, of uh, close caring uh, relationship with the great father of, of the nation of Israel, the great father of faith. And the rich man also died. Uh, that's going around, isn't it? And, uh, and uh, it's funny when you read the Old Testament, Solomon really struggled with this in the book of Ecclesiastes. He had all this money, more money and wealth and fields and crops, and, um, and he was just so bummed that death would bring an end to all of it. And so what's the use uh, uh, of it? And then you just leave it behind to uh, whoever know, you know, who knows what a, a child is going to do with it. And so he also died. Everybody dies. Doesn't matter. You're rich, you're poor, however much money, the health care plan, <laughs> barring the rapture of the church, nobody escapes this. And so uh, they, they, both, uh, they both died. And uh, uh, following death, uh, uh, we're told that uh, as, as the beggar went into this place uh, with, in Abraham's bosom, and, uh, and then the rich man being in torments, plural, uh, in Hades or hell, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off, that's not a good sign, and Lazarus 
in Abraham's bosom or being held uh, by, uh, by, uh, uh, by Abraham. And so the fact that this rich man, as Jesus is giving this account, the fact that this rich man uh, would end up in a place of torment, this would have stunned uh, the Pharisees. And it's the Pharisees he's still uh, continuing to talk to here. I do think in terms of understanding this account, um, uh, it, it is important to understand uh, and discuss a little bit about uh, the afterlife and what the afterlife was like in human history when people died before Jesus' death, burial, uh, and His resurrection, and the difference of what happened when a person died before that and then when a person dies uh, today following His death, burial, and resurrection in, in human uh, history. Before Jesus came into the world, and it is only He that uh, paid the satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins in order that as we would put our faith in Him, we would be clothed in His righteousness and be qualified then on the basis of His sacrifice to then enter in with a proper righteousness into uh, the glory of heaven and, and the presence of, of God there. And so prior to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, everyone who died went into what Jesus calls here Hades. And another term for the same exact place in the Bible uh, is, uh, is the word hell. And Hades means uh, uh, the waiting place. And clearly as we read this, this waiting place, this Hades, has two compartments. Uh, it, 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 one is very, very pleasant, and one is very, very unpleasant. And so Jesus, again, following His death upon the cross, having paid the price for the forgiveness of our sins, it would be three days before He rose again from the dead. And so what did He do between His death upon the cross and His resurrection? They didn't have iPads back then. There were no games. To, I mean, what did He do for that that period of time. I don't mean to be disrespectful. Well, the Bible answers that for us, I think, in, in, uh, here and elsewhere. And we're given insights in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul wrote of him, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led Jesus, he led captivity captive and He gave gifts to men. Now this, He ascended, what does it mean? But that He also first descended into the lower parts of the earth, and He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. In other words, during those three days between Jesus' uh, death and His resurrection, uh, he, uh, he preached in this two-compartment Hades. And he revealed in one of the greatest kind of three-day three conferences that you could ever attend, imagine what it would be like. But he goes in there and then he begins to reveal himself to the Abraham's bosom section uh, of, uh, of, of Hades that he uh, uh, and those that are saved by looking ahead to the coming uh, of Messiah by faith and, and he preached to them that he was uh, the, uh, the, the promised Messiah and then upon his resurrection he emptied out that compartment of Hades and uh, then led them up into heaven. He led, as Paul put it, the captives out of their captivity. Now, when a Christian uh, dies today, uh, we don't go to this place. That section of Hades is empty uh, to this day. The Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The Lord Himself uh, receives us and, and takes us up into glory. The interesting thing, too, is that the torment side, and really it's torments, plural, side of Hades, uh, filled with those who rejected uh, faith in the coming uh, Messiah and revealed it in an unrighteous life, they remain in that section uh, of Hades. There's a passage in the Old Testament that talks about uh, hell or Hades enlarging itself. Uh, 
And certainly it does enlarge itself, probably on a daily basis, to accommodate uh, the sheer number of people uh, that uh, are going uh, into, that, uh, into that place. And to this day, when a person dies, having rejected Jesus as their Savior, they go to Hades one day to face their uh, final judgment, which is the white throne judgment of Christ, and after which they are then delivered with Satan uh, into Gehenna, which is different than Hades. Hades is the waiting place. Gehenna is the eternal lake of fire, and they're delivered into eternal judgment. So Hades is a waiting place, ultimately for a judgment and a, 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 that is, that is uh, far, uh, uh, far worse. And it's fascinating. I think it's very sobering to realize uh, that today, here, 2,000 years later, that same rich man sits in Hades. And he awaits uh, a far worse judgment uh, than the one that, that he uh, is even facing there. It's certainly very, very heavy, and uh, no one would want to end up there or to make as these Jewish religious leaders were we're making uh, uh, some false assumption that will result in them ending up in Hades unnecessarily. The idea that I don't need to believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior, as they were doing, despite the witness of the Scriptures, because I'm rich and I couldn't be rich unless I was okay uh, with, with God. And, uh, and so Jesus is speaking right to them, and, and they know that. Of course, Jesus, uh, God doesn't desire that anyone would go to Hades, that anyone would end up in uh, Gehenna at all. That's why He put the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ between every human being and ending up in that place. And the only way I can end up there is to trod underfoot, as the writer of the book of Hebrews puts it, trod underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ and, and, and to count it as, as nothing, as an insignificant uh, thing. Sometimes people will say, well, I don't understand how God, a God of love can send anyone to hell. And the simple answer is that He doesn't. We make our own reservations. It's just the, the, the blame shifting that goes on in this culture is astonishing. Uh, we make our own reservations for where we spend eternity on the basis of what we do with Christ. And then uh, God simply confirms those reservations um, that we make. And so Gehenna never was, uh, Hades or Gehenna, never made for man. Satan and his angels, uh, it, it was made for them as these angels followed Satan in his rebellion against God. And when men reject Christ and they choose to join in Satan's rebellion against God and against His Son, then such a person will uh, share Satan's uh, end. Now, the, um, the, the rich man has a couple of requests that he wants to make of, uh, of uh, Abraham uh, here, and he cried out. Again, there's this distance between them, a barrier. And he said, Father Abraham, uh, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in torment in this flame. And so he just wanted one uh, drip of water. And so uh, he, he calls on uh, Abraham to send Lazarus to uh, do this uh, uh, this. Uh, um, a pleasure for him, and, uh, and Abraham uh, rebukes the hypocrisy of his request. He never did anything for uh, uh, Lazarus his entire life, and now he wants to uh, send Lazarus for uh, water, and, and he doesn't even talk to Lazarus. He's talking to Abraham and, and order him to go and, and do this. And Abraham is going to tell him no on this, and Hades is a um, a graceless environment. And uh, Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise, likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. So this is like hitting the, the Pharisees with a sledgehammer. This is, this is, Jesus is saying here, is against 
everything that they've been taught and everything uh, that they have believed about the afterlife. And then Abraham went on to say, and besides all this, even if we wanted uh, to do this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those uh, from there pass to us. And so all of that uh, is set, and there's no moving uh, on that. Once a person dies, uh, then, then a person's eternal destination is set. And, and then he went on further, and, he, and there's a desperation here. He said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him. So he, he, he moves from desiring some comfort for himself in his current environment. He moves to a thought that's less selfish than that, and he begins to think about his family. And uh, he says, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of uh, torment. And so, uh, this is the, 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 the request that he makes. He knows that his other five brothers are living the same exact life that he's been living. They are living under the same lie, the same self-deception and false confidence related to eternity. And he said, please, would somebody go back and tell them uh, to them so that they don't come to this place. And uh, uh, Abraham then uh, said to him, uh, they have Moses and the prophets, and that's a reference to the Old Testament. Let them hear Moses and the prophets uh, concerning these things. And of course, the law and the prophets uh, testify of Jesus as the Messiah. And, uh, and he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And that's his idea. If somebody rises from the dead and goes and tells them, that'll get their attention and they'll believe whatever the message is that, that the person is uh, is, is carrying uh, to them. And so uh, that was the, the great miracle and the great sign uh, that he, he wanted to, to uh, give to them. And, uh, and uh, in response to uh, Abraham saying, Moses and the prophets, if they won't listen to that, they won't listen to even if somebody comes back with a, 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 from the dead to deliver a message. And who is right? Um, Abraham was right on this. When you look at the world in which we live, certainly with the Jewish religious leaders that he's talking to here, you remember when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they were already plotting Jesus' death. And, uh, and, and uh, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and did it put any kind of a significant dent in the unbelief of the Pharisees? Uh, resurrection from the dead? No, not at all. In fact, their reaction was uh, the exact opposite. They determined then that they were, all, they were going to not only kill Jesus, but they were going to kill Lazarus because Lazarus was a testimony to the power of Christ. And so, so it, it, if you don't want to believe, you're not going to believe no matter who, uh, who brings uh, the message. And the fact of the matter is, is that there's, uh, there's no stronger witness to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, which is what the religious leader's real problem was, a lack of faith in Him, no greater witness than what they had access to and were supposedly spending their life investigating, and that is the, the law uh, and the prophets. But he said to them, uh, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And so Jesus rises from the dead in human history as a verification uh, and uh, to authenticate His message. It was God's, God the Father's amen to His message. And look at how many billions and billions of people uh, in the world don't allow resurrection to have any impact upon how they view anything in life. The most powerful witness to Jesus as the Messiah, the promised Messiah, is 
uh, the, uh, the Scriptures. And so uh, here uh, is Abraham, and this whole conversation that's taking place here is the exact opposite of what uh, they would have expected uh, you know, the, the uh, conversation that Abraham would have with them as opposed to somebody who was so uh, low in life as, as a Lazarus. And so it teaches us that there is a life after this life. It teaches us that there are two destinations after this life. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And, and that all religions don't lead to the same place as we're told continually uh, today. And uh, the choices that we make in life in terms of Jesus Christ uh, determines where our ultimate destination is going to be. It certainly teaches us that hell's a terrible place, and uh, no one who is there uh, wishes to remain there. It's interesting that the word torment is used four times as Jesus uh, lays out uh, this account, and it speaks of, of definite pain. And so it's a place where uh, as you stop and you think about it, where people uh, continue their, uh, as the rich man did, we can, uh, they continue their identity from this life. They have a consciousness of what's going on uh, around them. There's no reincarnation. There's no soul sleep. There's no annihilation. There's no being uh, absorbed into some kind of universal uh, life force. There is a life after death. And, and it is a place where people continue to think, they continue to feel, uh, they can see, they can hear, they remember their former life, and they can feel uh, regret. And the fascinating thing is that if, if every single person uh, that is in Hades today, if they had a chance to come back, their message would be the same and that is to put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And it's a fascinating thing, isn't it, that probably now uh, in, in uh, uh, Hades, uh, a soul is given greater worth, is esteemed more highly the value of a soul in Hades than it is on planet earth. And they, if they were given another chance, would warn everyone not to end up in this place, and how then not to end up in this place. But of course, it's, it, it's too uh, late for them. Now, the theme of, of chapter 16 in terms of uh, the parable of the unjust steward and this uh, account concerning Lazarus and the rich man, both of them uh, combined together, they speak about how to prepare for heaven. And so, for the Christian, the parable of the unjust steward uh, it teaches us that just as the natural man, uh, the unsaved man uses every opportunity in life to secure uh, a blessed physical future, uh, so too we're to use our present material wealth as Christians in such a way as to ensure an abundant entrance into heaven, a, an abundant reward there. The account of Lazarus and the rich man teaches us the necessity of faith in Jesus in order to uh, be saved from hell and not to allow anything in life, not fabulous wealth or anything, to give us a false security that there is some other way in which a person might be saved. Now, in uh, chapter 17, Jesus begins to address uh, stumbling blocks and offenses and forgiveness and faith and, and, and uh, changes subjects as He moves, as you notice in, uh, here in the early part of verse 17, He moves now from talking to the religious leaders and back to talking to His disciples. Then He said to the disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourself. So Jesus plainly says that offenses are going to occur in life. And they're going to occur uh, in, uh, in our lives, even as Christians. We're warned that things are going to happen. People are going to sin against us. People are going to fall short 
uh, in our lives, and it's possible for them to sin against us and, and, uh, and do things that are uh, so wrong uh, it, it, that we become aware of that it would be uh, the potential to stumble us uh, in, in our faith and in our relationship uh, with the Lord. So it can be someone who calls himself a Christian and uh, lives a life of deliberate disobedience to uh, the Lord. They bring scandal into the church in the name of Jesus Christ. Or it can be something that just happens to us individually. Uh, somebody says, boy, I need this and I got to get this and, and if you could just loan me this and you loan them, I mean, they're a Christian and all. And then they, they uh, borrow the money and they never, take, uh, they never pay it back and and uh, they take advantage of you. And so offenses are going to happen. And if I'm looking, as a Christian, if I'm looking for a reason uh, to stop being, uh, uh, following Jesus as His disciple uh, in, in this regard, uh, other people are going to provide all of us with ample excuses for uh, doing so, because we all fall short. And so we follow Him, we continue our relationship with the Lord because uh, 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 irregardless of whether others do or irregardless of what, uh, ha, what kind of a Christian life uh, they, uh, they live. And uh, uh, because nobody's perfect except Him, and so we have to keep our eyes supremely on Him. So if I, if I bring an expectation to my Christian life that Christians are always going to be perfect, that's a punchline, uh, then, uh, then I am setting myself up to be disappointed. And anybody that, that walks away from the Lord or even cuts themselves off from fellowship or ceases to grow as a Christian because of bad things that other Christians uh, have uh, done is someone that has their eyes on the wrong uh, person. Jesus alone is the singular, the faithful and true witness as He's described in the Scriptures. And He's the only one that is perfect uh, in, in Christianity. But in saying that, uh, Jesus is also warning us not to use that as an excuse to live a Christian life in which we live one that stumbles other people, that really messes them up uh, in their faith by the kind of life uh, that, that we're living, and that to sin against other Christians or to stumble them by sinning against them, that it's a real serious business in, in God's eyes, and God will bring serious consequences to those that, that, uh, that don't repent uh, of that. And so, uh, he, he, he takes and adjusts our expectations in terms of how we look at one another, but he adjusts it in such of a way that we never look at it and say, okay, I'm going to live any way that I want, and who cares who, who stumbled by that? Jesus said no, and he said, uh, take heed to yourself uh, concerning that. So it's a good thing as we're going through the Scriptures tonight. I'll do it, and you can, you can join me in it. But to just stop and ask ourselves in terms of the, the quality of our Christian life and what kind of an influence or effect does my Christian life have on other people? Does it have a good influence on them? Is it an edifying? Is it a good experience uh, for people? Or am I living a Christian life that is stumbling people from ever becoming a Christian or stumbling other Christians? And uh, Jesus warns that this is a, a serious business, and He warns in, in no uncertain terms. Now, we can be stumbled as Christians on the basis of how uh, the failure, let's put it this way, the failure of other Christians in their life, in their, in their Christian life. But we can also be stumbled in our Christian life ha having nothing to do with them and as a result of a failure in our own lives. And that's what he comes to now. He said, if your brother sins against you, and so a sin is a sin. 
uh, they really sin against you. It doesn't mean that we don't like uh, the color they dyed their hair. We're not talking about a personality conflict uh, between two people or I'm just not comfortable around them. This is where one Christian, chapter and verse, sins against you. And the, the thing that is to be done in order to then handle that, and here you are, this, is a, this stumbles me, this has become a distraction in my Christian life, and so what do you do? Uh, get on Facebook as fast as you can and uh, give pictures and all of the details and their telephone number uh, and their home address. Uh, no, he says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. To me, this particular issue is the most disobeyed passage by Christians, and I exhort myself, in all of the Bible, where we are just simply not good when somebody sins against us of then going to the person and working it out between us and the Lord. We begin a murmuring campaign, or we begin to slander them behind their back, or we begin to allow a root of bitterness to develop within our heart. And I can't even imagine the price that we pay individually or the body of Christ as a whole for the failure here. When someone sins against us, it stumbles us, and the failure then to go to that person and confront them and rebuke them related to what it is that they've done. And so that's his instruction to us to, to do that. The Bible talks about exhorting one another as Christians, especially as we see the day of the Lord's return approaching. So this is an important part of the Christian life. And, that, and instead what we do is we just change churches or whatever it might be. But then to rebuke him, and if he repents, he has a change of mind. You're absolutely right. I am so sorry about what I, I, uh, I did there. If he repents, then we are to forgive, uh, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day he returns to you, then hide under your desk uh, because... This guy's trouble, no? He says he, he, he sins against you seven times in a day. Seven times he genuinely repents to you saying, I repent, then you shall uh, forgive him uh, for uh, that, uh, that sin. And so this is what Jesus calls us uh, to do here. And what, what he's when he talks about seven and, you talk, and, and all, of course, the Jewish religious leaders of the day said, you need to forgive three times. And then after that, it's a three-strike-you're-out rule on, on forgiveness. And then you, 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 then you don't have to have anything to do with them. And Jesus says, no, it, it's seven. And I don't think the idea is you go, okay, no, that's seven. <laughs> I know number eight's coming, and I'm, I'm going to lower the boom on him and never have anything to do with him the rest of his life. Jesus just said seven times in one day, and this guy's so close. Now, it, it's interesting that Jesus is telling us in a part of our not being stumbled as Christians, and we have to get along with one another as Christians, is that the other person needs to be careful about their lifestyle, but we have to bring an attitude of forgiveness into our relationships with others in the body of, of Christ. And so often we are stumbled uh, in, these relation, in these kind of relationships uh, because we don't take and solve those. It's in our court we know what's been done to us. They can walk along oblivious of everything. And so it's in our court to go and talk uh, with them, give a chance for this to get rectified, and then to forgive. So a lot of times, these kind of things will irk us or drive us crazy about other Christians because we lack uh, this kind of forgiveness for others in the body of Christ when they genuinely are sorry for what they've done and they repent of it. Say seven times. Come on, seven times. How many times do you think you sin in a day? I mean, I can't even begin to. How would we do it? I mean, how, how many times does God forgive us 
on a given day. Every single one of us. The best of us, whoever that might be. No, it's the only way that we can be uh, like the Lord is, is in this, this regard of, of uh, forgiving in this way. One of the things that fascinates me related to the Lord's Prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and uh, that there's, there's only th- there's a section that contains three petitions to begin the day. And uh, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He takes, Jesus takes, in this model prayer that He gives to us, and He uses fully one-third of the petition section of that prayer to address forgiveness in our life. So that we will be reminded on a daily basis of the greatness of God's forgiveness toward us as Christians, and that we would be quick to receive His forgiveness, that's important, but then be just as quick to extend forgiveness to other people. And and so the fact that He brings this before our our eyes in this way in terms of a daily prayer speaks to how important all of this is in terms of our longevity in the body of Christ. Not that we would lose our salvation, but a lot of times we can drop out of fellowship, we can get bitter, we can get isolated against other people. has nothing to do with their conduct. has everything to do with how small and mean we are related to our our, uh, uh, forgiveness and lack of, of forgiveness, and that's what he's addressing. And don't think the disciples don't get it. The disciples heard him say this, and uh, they said to the Lord, increase our faith. And uh, that's just a nice way of saying that's impossible. And, and, and so Jesus seven times comes, repents, you forgive him, and they look at it and they say, increase our faith. In other words, Jesus, all right, we get it. We get what you're telling us to do right here, but you got to give us the key What's the key to be a, being able to do this? And Jesus is going to give them the key in just a moment. Now, it is important to realize that who he's talking to here are Christians. He's talking to disciples. No non-Christian can meet the standard of forgiveness that Jesus lays out here. And so Jesus doesn't go into a whole thing related to the empowering of the Holy Spirit, uh, God providing us with the will to do and the power to do of His good pleasure. We have all of those things as Christians. We have what the world does not have in terms of obeying this command. But there is a key to doing this. Uh, They asked for it, and He gives it to them. And so He said, If you have faith as a mustard seed, they said, increase our faith. And Jesus said, it's not about more faith. They thought it was about more faith. That's what what you might readily think. He said, no, no, it's not about more faith. If you have the faith as a mustard seed, just a little tiny, tiny bit of faith, you can say to this mulberry tree, uh, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Just a little tiny bit of faith will accomplish that. I don't know how many of you rearrange your entire yards every weekend. Just head out there and say, well, I'd like this crepe myrtle to be over here, and I'll move the Modesto ash over here. And, uh, but pretty uh, remarkable on, in terms of, of what Jesus uh, uh, declares here uh, in this. And so he says, if you, uh, it, it, it'll be pulled up by the roots, planted in the sea, and it would uh, obey you. And so what's required, again, not more faith, uh, just a little bit of faith is enough to obey the command. You don't need a lot of faith to obey the command. It's just a little bit of faith to obey uh, the command. And the idea is that, and faith is acting upon the fact of God's Word, and as I do that, I will discover the ability to obey His Word. I will discover the ability to forgive. And not only the ability to forgive, I will then have a feeling that will be in my, uh, my spirit that this feels right. This feels like God. This, this feels like 
the right thing to do in this situation as hard as it is for me uh, to, to uh, do it. So as we just take the little bit of faith that we have and we obey what He's called us to do here, then we will discover the power to do it, and then the faith will grow as a byproduct. We will recognize then I have the ability uh, to do this. I now have a history uh, of, uh, of, uh, of doing uh, this kind of thing. And so, uh, if they just stepped out in, in faith and God's uh, command concerning forgiveness, and they obeyed that command, they would discover as we would uh, His ability to pull uh, a root of bitterness by the roots out of our hearts because of those who have uh, stumbled us. And so, it's not more faith that we need uh, uh, it's just simply to be obedient and the faith will take care of itself. And um, that is the, the, the point that he makes uh, to them. You can do it. He said, oh, I'm still not convinced. So Jesus continues on. Say, man, I'm not gonna. I don't have. To, I'm not gonna let people put up, treat me like that, man. I get, I'd lose my reputation, and that kind of thing is no good for them either, you know. To, and so Jesus goes on and he talks about uh, making uh, the point that asking us to forgive in this way is, is not to demand too much of us uh, at all, in in light of how much he forgives us. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field? So the servant comes in from the field, the master is in the house. Oh, okay, come at once and, and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper, gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. And so likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done what was our duty to do. And so Jesus here makes the point that obedience in the realm of God's commands concerning forgiveness uh, is not too much to ask. Uh, of a servant, of a disciple, and we're never to think we've done some major, unbelievable thing when we do what He has called us to do here. And I don't know what, what, how, how you deal with that, but when I forgive people that have done great wrong to me, I think I've done a pretty big thing. I mean, I'll pat myself on the back for days over that. I don't need much. I don't need much. And, and I, I think it's just this biggest thing in the world that I, I've done. And, and it's the disconnect. It, it's how much this side of my Christian life is dominated by the way the world looks at these things as opposed to from the perspective of heaven. And, uh, and, uh, and so Jesus says, as my disciple, don't start think you're doing some big thing when you forgive others the way that I, I've instructed uh, you uh, you here. And uh, the servant comes in in the physical realm. Nobody would have blinked in that age what Jesus was talking about here. Uh, this is what was required of a servant. They would come in, take care of their master, then take care uh, of themselves. And Jesus is saying, we shouldn't blink at all when God calls upon us to forgive uh, others uh, in, in this way. The word unprofitable there it doesn't mean worthless. It, it speaks of one who has not gone beyond his obligation or duty. In other words, God hasn't asked something extraordinary of us as Christians to extend forgiveness to uh, uh, other Christians as they would uh, have stumbled us or created a problem for us and, and come to us and ask for forgiveness uh, with repentance. And of course, why would Jesus make this big point of this except, as I've just said, uh, that we consider it to be an extraordinary uh, big thing that we're doing. But again, it's, all of it is in the light of how much He has uh, forgiven us, the amount of forgiveness that He extends to us all of the time. And then to try and understand how unforgiveness is viewed from the vantage point of heaven. 
And here you have the heavenly realm that understands how much grace God does, understands how much grace He has poured out upon each of us uh, every single day, and then how unseemly it must be from that environment to then see us not forgive people for far less uh, when they sin against us. And in forgiving others in this way, there are very few ways in which we are more like God and more uh, a witness for Him in the world than, than when this happens. And so people can stumble us in the Christian life. They can stumble us by, by virtue of uh, their own behavior. But a lot of times, the reason we are stumbled is because we are so stingy with forgiveness and that we don't walk in a lifestyle of forgiveness, of the proper expectation. People are going to fall short. They do fall short. And to look at people and say, I don't expect uh, uh, perfection from this relationship. And they mess up. And, uh, and this isn't talking about here when he talks about someone sinning against you. It's not where uh, somebody you know, misses the mark a little bit and then, and then uh, every single mistake every single person makes in, in sins in the body of Christ that you run up and show them. Here it is right here. And I got it logged. And I got pictures. And um, it, so he's not talking about that kind of thing. Who would want to belong in a church or in the body of Christ if it, if it was that kind of thing that we were fighting over? But it's a sin, and it's a sin that genuinely stumbles us. And this is how it's to be taken care of on their end and then on our end. And we'll stop there tonight, and we'll pick things up uh, next time in uh, chapter 17. Let's stand together. If you're with us uh, this evening and you're not yet a Christian, we'll be up in front immediately after the service, and we'd love to pray with you to begin a relationship uh, with God through faith in His Son, and uh, enter into that relationship with Him. Uh, death comes to everybody, and there are only two destinations after death, and we make our own reservations. And so tonight, if you don't have reservations for uh, the proper side, and it is no less of an authority on the afterlife uh, speaking to this issue than Jesus Himself. He understands what happens a moment after we die, and you want to have that taken care of the forgiveness of sins. Begin a relationship with Him. We'd love to pray with you for that tonight. If you need prayer for anything this evening, we'd love to pray with you and for you uh, as well. Let me close this up in prayer uh, even now. Father, we thank You so much for Your forgiveness, and we thank You so much for uh, Your grace within our lives, even as we began. And, uh, uh, and, and surely... Uh, 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 cause and a reason for uh, more contemplation than we give it. And not to head into condemnation, Lord, but to be uh, much less stingy with our forgiveness than we can find ourselves. And Lord, we want to represent a forgiving God by representing forgiveness within the body of Christ and beyond. And so help us in this regard. We've got a new week out in front of us. You look at it, and it's as a tale that's been told. You know, everything that's coming, everything that we will need from you, and we're glad for that. And we pray that you would bless our week, that you would use it to draw us closer and closer to you, that you would use us as an influence for your kingdom. And then, Lord, we ask that you would just reveal yourself, your truth, some revelation from your throne into each one of our lives, just as you know we need this week in all of the things that we're facing, all of the decisions, all the trials, all, uh, all that we face in this fallen world. And we ask for this, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.